It is a pleasure to welcome back the author of The Hidden Spring, A Journey to the Source of Consciousness, Mark Soames. Welcome back. Thanks, Aidan. Great to be back. You're like Phileas Fogg traveling around the world at the moment. Yes, uh, that's why each time you see me, I have a different background. I'm in a different city every time. And uh, this time, speaking of Phineas Fogg, it looks like my background is a fog. <laughs> well, we're going to clear up some fog today about the brain. That's the goal of today's episode. I thought on today's episode, we would discuss questions like, where does arousal come from? What indeed is arousal? How does it arise physiologically? And the main question you pose in today's chapter is, where does the seemingly magical shift from automatic reflex to volitional feeling occur. Today, we'll share some further terms like synaptic transmission, reuptake, postsynaptic modulation, and the role of neurotransmitters and neuromodulators. And we'll also explain the role of the PAG, the periaqueductal gray. I had to learn that word, Mark, to make sure I pronounced it right. But I, I thought I'd tee you up and to stimulate our audience and to arouse their curiosity, I'd start with an excerpt that perhaps you'd unpack what I'm talking about here. It's from a case when a 65-year-old woman who had no previous history of psychiatric symptoms had an electrode implanted in the reticular brainstem nucleus, which reliably evoked this remarkable response. The patient's face expressed profound sadness within five seconds. Although still alert, the patient leaned to the right, started to cry, and verbally communicated feelings of sadness, guilt, uselessness, and hopelessness, such as I'm falling down in my head, I no longer wish to live, to see anything, hear anything, or feel anything. The depression that she displayed disappeared within 90 seconds after stimulation was stopped fascinating way to start and you certainly evoked and aroused my curiosity when i saw that in the book perhaps you'll unpack what i'm talking about here mark yes sure so let me first of all uh, give the the the, the uh, medical background to this case um as you said she's a 65 year old woman who has no psychiatric history at all and specifically no history of depression um she has however, a neurodegenerative disease called Parkinson's disease, uh, which affects movement. And um, the quite a common treatment for some of these cases these days, I say some because the treatment is only suitable for a subset of them, uh, is to insert an electrode um, into a part of the brain uh, called the subthalamic nucleus. And uh, this suppresses the motor symptoms. The brainstem is a tiny place. So it's, it's not uh, surprising that sometimes the electrode, which might be uh, targeting a particular nucleus, uh, ends up uh, uh, affecting neighboring nuclei. And in this case, what happened was it went through the subthalamic nucleus into a part of the reticular activating system, a specific nucleus called the substantia nigra, which just means the black substance. And um, this, is, this is important for one of the neuromodulators you mentioned in your introduction. I think you might have alarmed our audience with all of the technicalities. But this nucleus uh, produces a neuromodulator, uh, a chemical called dopamine. 
And dopamine is very important uh, for, for the movement systems of the brain, but it's also important for mood, uh, specifically for that dimension of mood that we call depression versus mania. Uh, excess dopamine causes mania, and a, a depletion of dopamine cause, causes depression. And when I say causes, uh, this case illustrates very well that that is an apt word. You can cause depression by blocking dopamine, which is what happened in this case. That electrode, uh, which was a high-voltage electrode, uh, it damps down the activity of the substantia nigra, and therefore her brain is depleted of dopamine. And that brings about this dramatic change in her mood. She became depressed within five seconds. And when I say depressed, I mean literally suicidally depressed. And uh, the surgeon, uh, whose name is Blomstedt, uh, when he switched the electrode off, within 90 seconds, the depression lifted. In fact, she became slightly manic for a few minutes. Uh, in other words, there was a rebound. Uh, then, then she normalized. And she very kindly agreed to let Blomstedt then switch the electrode on again. Um, in, in different places, sometimes in the correct place that he was aiming for, uh, the, that motor nucleus, and sometimes uh, in this arousal nucleus, uh, the one that he accidentally stimulated. And the patient didn't know when he was stimulating uh, one or the other. And every time he stimulated the substantia nigra, the, the part of the reticular activating system, she fell back into the suicidal depression within seconds. Now, look, this is an illustrative case. It's an example. It's not the only evidence we have of this. And uh, what does it mean? Well, let me remind uh, uh, our audience, first of all, that some episodes back, um, I spoke about the reticular activating system for the first time. And I said, although we all agree, by we, I mean neuroscientists, everyone in neuroscience who knows anything about the reticular activating system agrees that it is the arousal system of the brain. It switches on the lights. Uh, it switches on consciousness and switches off consciousness. But it was previously thought, and it still is widely thought, to be uh, something like a, well, to use the terminology I just used, something like a light switch uh, or, or a rheostat, which increases or decreases the volume, the sort of quantitative dimension of wakefulness. And that's the term that's frequently used for it. Therefore, you might reasonably expect uh, that if you, as happened in this patient, you turn down the volume um, of the reticular activating system, what you should see is something like sleepiness, something like hypoarousal. Uh, that's why Blomstedt, in his description of the case uh, that you just read, uh, he says the patient, although still alert, uh, described this intense change in her mood, in her emotional state. And that's not what you would expect if all that the reticular activating system did was control a quantitative level of consciousness. It illustrates the point that I made in the previous episode. It illustrates it, I think, vividly, that uh, what the reticular activating system regulates is not a quantitative level uh, so much as um, as a so much as a as a qualitative dimension the quality that it regulates or modulates 
is, is called feeling, emotional feeling. It's not just a quantity. It's not just a level. It's a content of consciousness, uh, and that content is, 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 is emotional. So um, if you place that electrode in other parts of the reticular activating system, you would likewise get um, changes in the affect, in the emotional state of the patient in regard to other aspects of emotion. For example, uh, you can stimulate anxiety um, as opposed to depression uh, by, by placing the electrode um, in, in uh, I won't go into all the technical terms, but into other. So that's what it illustrates. Um, and uh, uh, I say again, this is just one case illustrating a general principle, which is that the reticular activating system, the so-called arousal system of the brain, which everyone agrees, activates uh, consciousness. It, it, what it illustrates is that this prerequisite activation of consciousness upon which everything else uh, depends. Everyone agrees that all the higher cognitive forms of consciousness are contingent upon brainstem arousal. It shows that that, that prerequisite wakefulness has a content and a quality, and that is effort, that is feeling, that is um, that includes emotionality like you see in this patient. So what it illustrates is that the foundations of consciousness are feelings, not just switching on the lights. One of the things that jumped to mind for me reading that was I, like you, from South Africa, played rugby, right? So one of the things that happens when you play rugby is you often get a knock in the head. And I got concussed a couple of times. And one of the things I always find remarkable when you get concussed, you often start crying or become hyper emotional as well. And you see this oftentimes when a player is walking off the pitch, and sometimes people think, oh, he must be devastated that he's been brought off the pitch. But it's it's not controllable. It's non-controllable. That jumped to mind. And then I thought that how you explain also in the book how this stimulation also can happen with non-invasive ways through drugs, for example. So antidepressants, antipsychotics, anti-anxiety medication as well, they all play a part. First of all, what you're saying about concussion, that is uh, certainly true. Let me just explain the mechanism of that. Uh, from the, the brainstem arousal structures, which we are talking about here, uh, there are long axons. Uh, these are the, the you know neurons have a cell body and then a long fiber. Uh, that's called an axon. So from the brainstem, those axons uh, um, lead to the cortex, to the higher brain. Uh, and the higher brain regulates uh, these, these emotions that come from, from below. Uh, and in concussion, uh, you, have a, you have a temporary, uh, uh, it's a stretching of those axons. And so they are temporarily dysfunctional. That's why you lose consciousness or can lose consciousness temporarily. And then when it comes back, they're not functioning properly. So the higher regulation of those lower emotion structures um, is not uh, is not uh, 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 effective. Uh, in more serious injuries, more serious than concussion, uh, as happens, for example, in what's called uh, closed head injury or, or traumatic brain injury, like occurs in motor vehicle accidents, those long axons are not just stretched, they, are, they snap. Uh, and then you permanently lose the capacity to regulate emotion from above. And so you have these very emotional states uh, that we see in those patients.
one of the things that's come across from this show, I hope, from this this series is to have empathy for those people who have either had neurochemical imbalances or damage like your brother, for example, and how they lose all kind of emotion uh, and stimulation and drive as well because of the effects to dopamine as well. I think that's an important aspect to call out. I want to say two things. The one is picking up on the point you just made. I mean, since we're focusing on dopamine, um, you said that uh, correctly, you said that because these um, neuromodulators are so important in in the uh, um, in the arousal of emotional states, um, we we treat psychiatric disease uh, by targeting those arousal systems. And so um, dopamine blockers are antipsychotics. They, they, they also called major tranquilizers. They completely damp down the motivation um, of the patient. Uh, sadly, it's not a very precise treatment of psychosis. It really is quite a, quite a blunt instrument. And conversely, if you give a dopamine booster, uh, you can make the patient manic. Um, manic means overexcited, uh, sort of overly optimistic and, and, and uh, overly interested in everything. Uh, 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 and uh, if you push it e- even higher, you push the patient into psychosis. So the, the fact that these drugs are used um, in psychiatry, they are the mainstay um, of, of modern uh, psychiatric medications, further illustrates the point that these are not just light switches. These are not just quantitative levels of consciousness of the kind that an anesthetist might be interested in. Uh, these have to do with the emotional contents of our experience of the kind that a psychiatrist might be interested in. So um, that's the one point I wanted to make, building on what you said. The other is just to make sure that our audience is getting the bigger picture that emerges from all of this, everything we've just been saying, uh, which is that what comes from below, literally in the anatomical sense, what comes from the brainstem arousal systems is emotion, feelings. Um, and what comes from above, from the cortex and the other forebrain structures, are mechanisms which modulate and regulate and contain those emotions. And so uh, depending on where the damage is or where the dysfunction is, you either have an excess of emotion or a deficit of emotion control. And then it also depends on which one of the emotions you're talking about. So you say uh, correctly in, in, in cases many cases uh, uh, of traumatic uh, brain injury, uh, that you might lose the dopamine arousal of the brain. And so the patient becomes very apathetic and inert. They lack spontaneity and generativity and uh, and creativity and so on. Um, they lack volition. Um, and you can have the opposite if the, if the damage is at the other end, you know, that they have too much um, of those things. So the, the big picture is just that, that the, that the, the, the brainstem and its arousal systems is where the emotionality comes from, and the cortex and the other cognitive systems, they regulate and contain emotion. This is slightly off topic, but it's just because it jumped into my mind, and I'm sure it probably jumped into the mind of many of the audience, is if, for example, I understand if you have psychosis or schizophrenia that that you need to downregulate the dopamine effect there. So the person stops having those psychoses. And then as a result, they become apathetic almost. 
But the one I don't really get is, for example, ADHD, and then you treat ADHD with stimulants. I don't really understand that one. And many people have asked me about that myself. And I don't, I can't articulate why myself very accurately. Yes. Well, uh, just to, uh, first of all, make sure that our audience is following why you're going there. Uh, it's that we, we treat ADHD with dopamine, uh, which is a stimulant of that, that very system we're talking about now, known technically as the seeking system. Uh, and yet, uh, ADHD is hyper-seeking, seeking too much. So why would treating, why, why don't we damp down uh, dopamine in these cases? Um, and the answer to that is, first of all, not entirely worked out. I don't want to pretend we know everything about the mechanisms there. But, but uh, as best we understand it, the problem in ADHD uh, isn't just, a, it isn't a dearth of, uh, of dopamine uh, uh, control or an excess of dopamine. It is a, it is a dysregulation. So, so it's, it's not too much or too little. It's a poor regulation of that system. And that what the drugs that work best uh, with ADHD do is they provide a more stable level of dopamine. So it's it's a it's a kind of uh, it's a kind of balancing of the dopamine um, in relation to the control systems, rather than a simple boosting of dopamine because there's a deficit of it, or a simple blocking of dopamine because there's an excess of it. Thank you for tempering me and, and uh, let me know about that. I, I, it's just one that, and then that explains to me, I was kind of had an aha moment. Then you know about people having trying different versions of ADHD medication for that reason, because it's almost like a graphic equalizer. Everybody's different. So we don't know because we can't look inside their head to see their dopamine uh, content, if you want to call it that way. That's right. As much as we are proud of what we know today compared to 100 years ago, you know, in 100 years' time, from now, uh, we'll look back upon our current knowledge and recognize how you know how basic it how basic it is. Um, the the same as what you've just said about ADHD applies even more so to the epilepsies. You know we have a great variety of anti-epileptic drugs, uh, and there's a certain sequence in which you try them. Uh, but the, the, what I've just said illustrates the point. You can't predict what's going to work with the individual patient. And so you try this, and then you try that, and then you try the other thing, and then you try a combination. And then finally, you get the cocktail that works for this one individual patient. Um, and that's, you know, that, that's a measure of the, 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 the continuing limits of our understanding. Hopefully we get there before we destroy the planet <laughs> or blow it up, whichever. Uh, yeah. So anyway, I, I, it's, I think it's really interesting because it also shows why, you know, for example, your colleague and friend, Antonio Damasio comes out with a new book. Eric Kandel comes out with a new book. You come out with a new book is because the science keeps updating and it's, it's no, not a case that, oh, you're rewriting the same thing. It's like, kind of gone, there's been a load more advances here. Now I need to rewrite it based on that as well. And I, I love how you do that in the hidden spring as well. But I wanted to build on that because just to signpost where we are here at this stage, you say lesion studies, deep brain stimulation, pharmacological manipulation and functional neuroimaging all point to the same conclusion. The reticulate core of the brainstem generates affect. So that's where we are. But maybe I thought we should define arousal a bit more which 
can also be defined physiologically. And I, I really love the idea of brain waves and understanding the different brain waves from gamma to, to alpha to theta, etc. Maybe you'll bring us through that aspect. Yes, there are different ways in which you can measure brain arousal. Uh, you can measure it behaviorally. And uh, for that, we use a thing uh, called the Glasgow Coma Scale, where you're basically assessing the patient's responsivity. So uh, the best uh, level is that you give a verbal instruction to the patient, you know, please lift your left hand, and they do it. Uh, so that's perfect responsivity. Uh, but if you don't get that kind of response, then you slowly go down to more and more basic levels of trying to elicit a response uh, and pretty near the bottom of it, you I'm sorry to say this, you stick a pin into the patient's foot uh, and see if that arouses uh, a response. So it's a behavioral way of measuring arousal. To what extent uh, behaviorally does the patient uh, appear to be aroused, measured by responsivity? You can also measure it, arousal that is, uh, by uh, nowadays by brain imaging, functional brain imaging, uh, which measures the different types of functional brain imaging, but I'll just sort of pare it down to the basics. Uh, the more that cells fire, uh, the more they burn oxygen, uh, the more they uh, therefore uh, require uh, the, the metabolic um, activity that, that keeps cells going. And so we measure that. We measure uh, metabolic activity. And where you see the most me metabolic activity, that's the most aroused part of the brain. And if you see more metabolic activity generally, then you have a more generally aroused brain and vice versa. So sleeping versus wakefulness, you, you know, you can see on these, uh, on these images, literally pictures of, of what's going on inside the brain. You see the lights coming on and the lights going off. Um, the most um, widely and used and, and oldest technology is EEG, electroencephalography, uh, where using um, electrodes on the scalp, on the outside of, this, of, the, of, this, uh, of the head, uh, you measure electrical activity through the cranium, uh, it, what's going on in the brain underneath the, the cranial vault of the skull. Um, and there you measure the level of arousal via the level of electrical activity that you see. When I say level, there's some technical details there. The highest levels, um, not to put too fine a point on it, they, 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 the waves are very erratic. Um, so they, they're fast, erratic waves. That means there's lots of information processing going on. Uh, and the less aroused you are, the slower the waves become. And so those are the, the slow waves that you see during sleep, uh, the, 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 the delta waves uh, are the slowest ones. You know, that's a very under-aroused brain. Gamma waves, uh, which was the highest level of brain activity, they look like this. But the important thing is also that when you look at the waves, unlike these ones, which are entirely predictable, uh, these are highly erratic. So there's there's lots of information processing going on. And then there are various levels between that, theta, uh, alpha, uh, theta, uh, down to delta. I think that's really interesting, again, to build for our audience on other things like, for example, meditation or for turning off outside uh, noise stimulus is really important because you, you actually change brainwave state. I, I explain this oftentimes uh, to students, Mark, and indeed in my workshops, because when you get into the right brainwave state, you actually think differently. And maybe you have a word on that, because for, for me, one of the breakthrough 
aha moments of say gratitude journaling or meditation was that in the theta state, your conscious mind almost goes to sleep because your brain goes to sleep in different segments. And therefore you have access to the subconscious mind. And the other thing I learned is that children are, are mainly in the theta wave state for a long period of time. These are really important aspects. Yes, that's correct. I mean, the, 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 the popular technique uh, of biofeedback uh, is where you have these electrodes on your, on your head, um, recording your brain waves, and then you have a screen in front of you where you see your own brain waves. And so you, you by changing your state of mind, uh, you can see what's happening to the waves, and then you can learn, oh, by doing this, it puts me into that band by doing that it puts me and so you you know and so you can regulate it i don't want to overstate it it's not that easy but with practice you know you can do quite a bit and uh, the only additional point i want to make here just so as to not mislead people or not oversimplify really is that um, it's not that the whole brain is in the same state uh, simultaneously so that you might have theta in the hippocampus but not in the cortex uh, and uh, the and theta in the hippocampus is doesn't have the same psychological doesn't have the same psychological consequences as it does in the cortex. So it depends also on which part of the brain is in which um, in which arousal state. I thought we'd share, as I said at the top of the show, the processes involved in synaptic transmission. So very basic here, but uh, I'd love to hear from an expert. And some other terms like reuptake is important to understand here. Postsynaptic modulation, the roles of trans neurotransmitters and neuromodulators. For me, one of the, the things I got from reading your work, because you describe it so clearly, is that if you're having a thought on a regular basis, it's almost like the neurotransmitters are like fairy dust, that they make that cement into place, that thinking or that way of learning even more uh, aptly. So it, it's almost like it hypermyelinates it, if you want to put it that way, to make it actually stick in place to go, you remember that now for next time, and particularly emotionals like fear, if fear is present, when you learn something, you're not going to forget it as much. I love how you describe all of this. So there's a lot here. So I'll get out of your way. Well, um, it is complicated. So I won't try to cover everything. I'll, I'll cover the basics. The single most important point here Aiden, is that most people uh, when they think about neurons passing uh, messages to each other, um, they they think about they, we all have this. We pick it up at school already. You know, you have these drawings of the neurons that they are the dendrites, which are the which are sort of the receiving signal receiving part of the neuron. Then there's the cell body. Then there's the axon, which ends in a synapse, and that synapse connects to the dendrites of the next cell. And so messages get passed from cell to cell. Uh, that's what most people think of when we speak of neurotransmission or you know what neural activity is all about. It's the one cell activates the next cell, activates the next cell, and this propagates a signal. Um, and, and even there, I've oversimplified because it's not just one cell that passes a message to the next cell. Uh, they're in fact uh, aggregates of cells uh, connecting to aggregates of cells because each neuron has thousands of dendrites. So it's it's receiving input from many, many cells and passing it on to many other cells. Um, so, but the basic idea is that messages get passed from cell to cell uh, and 
This is called neurotransmission, and it happens across synapses. The, the next point, which you just touched on, it, it refers to a, a famous law called Hebb's law, uh, which, which goes something like this, neurons that fire together, wire together. Uh, and that basically refers to the fact, and again, I'm keeping it simple, uh, which is that uh, this passing of messages, um, it's not just each time you pass the message, uh, you reinventing the wheel. It's that if the same message gets passed many times, uh, then the brain learns, okay, so I expect this to happen. Um, and that's and that is the, the mechanism of that is basically at the synapse where each where each axon joins to each dendrite. In other words, the receiving fibers uh, of the cell uh, and the communicating fibers of the cell they join at synapses. Uh, the the synapse becomes more or less uh, likely to cause uh, this, the next cell to fire. So with learning, uh, you increase or decrease. Um, the, the 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 synaptic permeability, we call it synaptic permeability or synaptic weighting, which is just basically learning. It's the it's the fundamental mechanism whereby neurons wire together. There, there are many technical details within that, but that's the basic idea. So the 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 more a message passes, uh, the response is going to be different in because the brain has learned. And that's because of the synaptic weighting, the connections between the neurons, um, they, they, they alter. That's what most people know about neurotransmission and, uh, and, and, and what synapses do and so on. Uh, I should just add, there are two neurotransmitters for the most part that do that. Uh, one is called GABA uh, and the other is called glutamate. Glutamate excites the neuron uh, that's behind that. The next, it's called the postsynaptic neuron, the, the neuron that you're passing the signal to. It excites it. Glutamate does. GABA inhibits it. So you can either make the neuron fire more likely to fire or less likely to fire. That's that's how this message. It's, it's a it's a yes or a no, a one or a naught. Uh, the signal that's being passed. Now, what most people don't realize, uh, although neuroscientists know this well. Uh, is that there is another kind of of um, connectivity uh, and functionality uh, between neurons, and that we call not not this synaptic transmission, but rather postsynaptic modulation. So it's not transmission; it's modulation, and it's not at the synapse; it's after the synapse. That's why we say postsynaptic. And the best way to I'm illustrating it like this: this is. This neuron passes a message to that neuron. That's message passing. It's synaptic neurotransmission. Then there's these modulatory neurons, which send axons all along the length of the postsynaptic neuron. And what they're doing is modulating. They're increasing or decreasing the chances that that neuron will respond to the one that's sending the message. So this is a one-zero digital passing of messages. And this is a sort of analog, uh, increasing or decreasing the likelihood that this neuron is going to respond to that. So that's what we call postsynaptic neuromodulation. And crucially, that's what the reticular activating system does. It's We call it the reticular activating system, but it can activate and deactivate. So that's why the, the better word is modulation. It doesn't just activate, it modulates up or down. Uh, the, the chances of the postsynaptic neuron firing. 
Now, there's another important fact about neuromodulation, which is that the message passing that goes along in the neurotransmission, uh, it's, 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 it goes across very precise channels, whereas the modulatory neurons, uh, they, they have axons all over the place, and the, so they're much more rough and ready. They, they arouse a whole area of the brain. They, 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 it's, you can think of it as a kind of soup, you know, that they, they, it's, it's not this precise digital message passing. It's much more of a chemical process. And the neuromodulators, they don't just pass a signal and then they're gone. You spoke of reuptake. The reuptake is the taking back of the, so the neurotransmitter is emitted, then it's taken back, then it's emitted again, then it's taken back. Whereas with the neuromodulators, these arousal systems for these brainstem reticular activating systems, the, the, the neuromodulators float about for a long time. So their effect is much slower and it's much less precise. It's more in the, in the nature of a kind of wave of, of influence over time rather than a precise ta -ta 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 -ta, uh, passing of a message. Now, one last thing to add. Um, well, in fact, I think two last things to add. Uh, the one is that this modulation, to go back to what I was saying a few minutes ago, that's what we used to think was just level. It was increasing or decreasing the level. In other words, when I said the likelihood that the neuron will fire, well, that means you're more aroused if it's if there's a higher likelihood, you're less aroused if there's a lower likelihood. And that is indeed what happens, for example, in sleep. Um, the neuromodulation of the forebrain is such that it makes those mess that message passing much less likely to happen on average. And so, you know, you have less consciousness in the in the level or wakefulness sense of the word. But now here's the rub. Uh, the, the, if that were the case, then all you would need is, like we have in message passing, an excitatory modulator and an inhibitory modulator. It switches on the lights or switches off the lights. But that's not what we have. We have five different modulators coming from the reticular activating system. Dopamine is one of them, which we were just talking about. And we all saw when we spoke about dopamine, it doesn't switch lights on or off. It, it influences a particular aspect um, of the mental state, a particular qualitative dimension of the mental state of the patient. Uh, that's dopamine. The others, noradrenaline, serotonin. Everyone's heard of serotonin because of its important role in antidepressant medications. Um, and then there's acetylcholine, and then there's histamine. Why do you need five if all they're doing is switching on and off the lights? Uh, well, you need five because they are actually controlling different dimensions, and those dimensions are qualitatively different from each other. Um, and then I need to add uh, that those are the five classical neuromodulators that come from the reticular activating system, but they're not the only neuromodulators we have. Uh, people are often surprised to learn uh, the neuromodulators don't only come from the brain stem, they also come from two other places. The one is from the rest of the body. So, for example, the glands, uh, like the adrenal glands, uh, the sex glands, you know, the, the, the gonads, the, the ovaries and the testicles, uh, the, 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 the thyroid, and so on. These gland, the, 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 the hormones uh, that are circulating through your bloodstream from these glands, they too are neuromodulators. So, things like sexual arousal. Uh, are modulated by hormones. I mean, I'm just giving the example of sexual arousal, 
um, that are, that come from your body, not not only from the brain itself. It's the brain being aroused or modulated by chemicals from the body, and then the other one uh, is is what are called peptides. Peptides are similar to hormones, but they act over shorter distances than hormones do. And and peptides, there are more than a hundred peptides that are active in the brain. We call them neuropeptides. Um, and the, uh, I, I mean, perhaps one that people are very familiar with is opioids. You know, the the thing that uh, is regulated by drugs like morphine. Um, the but there, there's, as I say, over a hundred of them. Uh, oxytocin is another one that's well known. Uh, I think relatively the so-called love hormone or trust hormone. It's it's a peptide. The, the, the difference, as I say, between peptides and hormones is is is, is a complicated business. But the point is that these, we have more than 100. So there are five classical neuromodulators coming from the reticular activating system. Then they're the ones coming from the, from the body. Uh, and then they're the, and, and the pep, that includes peptides, but they're also peptides that are released within the brain. Uh, and the hypothalamus manufactures many peptides. And these are much more precise, not in the sense that I was speaking about message passing, but more precise in that modulatory effect is precise in the sense that it has a very specific qualitative effect. And so the future of psychiatry, um, which has focused for the most part on those five neuromodulators, most, as I said, the mainstay of psychopharmacology is drugs that act on those five main modulators. Um, We are learning, we're very much in the process of learning uh, what the regulation of these much more specific neuropeptide systems, what that does to the various um, emotional and affective systems of the brain. Uh, and uh, that, that is a really important new frontier. But to come back to the bottom line, the bottom line is brain activity is not just passing messages. It's not just a cognitive process. Um, it is a modulatory arousal process. And that modulatory arousal process, which modulates the message passing, involves a huge multiplicity of chemistries um, which regulate all these different aspects of our feeling life. Mark, before we move on to the PAG and you mentioned the work of Bjorn Merker, I thought we'd just mention that you say, and this is a really important aspect that I wasn't aware of, neuromodulators can only modulate upwards and downwards signals that actually exist. That is, they already have currently active channels, so they, they have been set down already these pathways and they're released diffusely but they influence only those neurons which one have relevant receptors and two are currently active this is an important aspect before we move on to the pag and how prediction models work yes so you said two things there the one is that you can only a a neuromodulator can only modulate those neurons which have receptors that respond to that neuromodulator Receptors are basically like keyholes, uh, and you know you can try and enter a door uh, with the wrong key. You're not going to be able to open it. So each one of the neuromodulators is like a different key, and those keys will only open those neuronal doors that they fit. So not all neurons have receptors for all neuromodulators. So you release a, a great uh, a, a cloud of neuromodulators but it only influences those neurons that have got receptors for that modulator. And then secondly, as you just said, 
Uh, if, the, if the neuronal message passing, if there is no message being passed, then you can't influence it. So, you know, you, you can make the neuron more likely to respond to a signal, but if there ain't no signal, you're doing nothing. You know, so you're only modulating those signals which are actually passing at any one point in time. Now, time to move on to that periaqueductal gray, the PAG, and the work of Bjorn Merker. You say here that the PAG is conceptualized as the terminus of the descending network for effect to be contrasted with the ascending and modulatory effect networks of the brainstem's body monitoring nuclei and reticular activating system. This is a lot to unpack, but this is key as we move towards the hidden spring and the source of consciousness. The title of my book, The Hidden Spring, uh, refers to the brainstem nuclei, which are the source of consciousness. And remember, my basic uh, point is that the source of consciousness is affective. It's feeling. So there's no such thing as consciousness without quality. Um, the, the, the very coming into being of consciousness means it feels like something. You, know, you can't be there without feeling something. So that hidden spring is the in the brainstem, and I uh, divide that. When I say I divide it, uh, well, we divide it. The neuroscientific community generally is agreed upon this: that in the upper brainstem, uh, these core brainstem nuclei that we are talking about um, can be divided into two types or two parts, two aspects. The one is the reticular activating system, which we've just been talking about. Remember, I said the reticular activating system is the core of the arousal systems of the brain. Those five main neuromodulators come from the reticular activating system. In addition, there's, there's some that come from the rest of the body. And in addition, there's some that come from the rest of the brain, these peptides and hormones. Um, but those are the arousal systems, and it's an ascending system. In fact, uh, one of the commonly used terms is the ascending reticular activating system. It, it, it's, it, it's, by the way, not even true that uh, it also descends. It also regulates the spinal cord and, 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 and uh, uh, more peripheral aspects of the nervous system. But when it, it, for the most part, it's an ascending in terms of how it affects our thinking, our cognition, uh, our, our intellectual activities. They're, they're, you're woken up from below, um, and this modulation comes from below. Uh, that's what the reticular activating system and these other arousal structures do. Um, they, remember, what they're doing is modulating message passing. So they're modulating your intellectual and physical activity. The message passing is, I'm going to move my right hand. Look, here, here I'm moving my right hand. The modulation of that. Uh, is is increasing or decreasing the chances of that thought occurring and of that movement occurring. It's it's modulating the intention and the action. Um, so that's what those arousal systems do. Then there's a to, to not to put too fine a point in it, a descending aspect to all of this. So once once you've once you've performed an action uh, which has an intention, uh, the intention is to is to achieve a certain goal. Then there's a feedback back to the brainstem of, okay, so where do things stand now? Um, ha ha has what I intended to happen happened? Uh, am I still uh, intending the same thing or should I change my mind? Uh, should I change tack? 
Um, this is a constant feedback loop, feed forward, feedback, feed forward, feedback. The feed forward aspect is the arousal aspect, the modulating. So there's a whole lot of potential plans there. And then you're modulating, making this one less and this one more likely to happen. This is how your mood and emotion and the whole affective side of life modulates what you what you want to do and what you do. Then there's the feedback aspect. And again, I'm simplifying, but the feedback aspect basically uh, feeds back to two other structures in the brain stem, which are not part of the reticular activating system. Um, the, the, the two of them are firstly what's called the superior colliculi. Sorry, it's a big word. Um, it's, it's part of what is called the tectum, which basically means the roof. It's the little roof over, over the, the ventricle, over the hollow part of the brainstem. And that is a condensed summary from all your senses uh, as to where things stand now. It's called a saliency map. It's like a, it's a very simple two-dimensional map of the current state of the world, of me in relation to the world. It's a kind of a, it's a kind of a, 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 an action intention map of me in relation to what they call to targets, in other words, the current objects of interest. Very uh, basic map of where things stand now. Um, and that's the kind of perceptual motor cognitive feedback uh, to the superior colliculi. Much more interesting is just next to the superior colliculi, just on the other side of the canal, uh, of that central canal that runs through the brainstem is the periaqueductal gray. By the way, periaqueductal just means around the canal. Um, and gray means gray. So it's the gray tissue around the canal. And what, what is uh, dramatically important about this structure is that all of the affective systems of the brain, all, and I'm here I'm not oversimplifying, all of the affective systems of the brain feedback to the periaqueductal gray. And when I say they feedback, there's a specific thing that they feedback, which is what we call the error signal. Uh, so remember I said some episodes ago that all of our affects are homeostatic. Uh, this is where I need to be. Uh, this is where I am. So that's a bad thing and a good thing. I'm going away from where I need to be. That feels bad. I'm heading back to where I need to be. That feels good. The error signal is that that. The more you're deviating from where you expect to be, the more there's an error signal. And so that homeostatic deviation, uh, it, it is sent down to the periaqueductal gray alongside the external state of affairs. So it's kind of, this is where things stand now in terms of the internal state of affairs, my needs. And this is where things stand now in terms of the outside world. So to, to, to keep it simple, what we say is that the feedback is the current state of needs and opportunities um, because a need can only be assessed in relation to its opportunity. For example, uh, you might be thirsty and hungry and in front of you is an apple and there's no water to be seen. Uh, you're going to go for the apple. Uh, you might be thirsty and hungry and there's a great big bowl of water but nothing to eat. What you're going to do is go. So you'll prioritize first when there's a greater opportunity to be able to satisfy it, you'll prioritize hunger when there's a greater opportunity to satisfy that. Uh, but if the hunger error signal is so big um, that 
uh, it, it, it now outweighs uh, the thirst opportunity. You say, I know I can drink, but I'm not going to drink now. I've got to go do the extra work to find, uh, to find um, nutrients. So the periaqueductal gray receives all these error signals. And then here's the crucial thing. In relation to current opportunities, it prioritizes them. Uh, the main function of the periaqueductal gray is to receive um, current state of all of my needs and then to prioritize which ones am I going to act. You can't do everything at once. So you have to prioritize. So it prioritizes in terms of this saliency map that I was talking about earlier. It prioritizes what to do next. Uh, there's an action bottleneck. So that's why you have to have a you have to have a sequence of of and uh, and so that's what the periaqueductal gray does. It prioritizes our affective needs, and affects include, remember, bodily needs and emotional needs. So it's not just things like hunger and thirst and sleepiness. It's also things like anger and fear um, and separation, distress, and so on. And then that determines what to do next. And then you have the arousal side of it again. Okay, here's my plan. Then I modulate it. Um, the modulation is the affective, how well palpating, you know, and, and then, okay, this is how that turned out. Do we still stick with the same plan? No, we adjust the plan. Okay, here comes the next action sequence. How did that work out? Uh, do we carry on doing the same thing? No, no, I've got a different priority now. Drop that plan. Now, now I'm being attacked. You know, now, now go for, uh, you know, the, the, the plan is no longer foraging and seeking something. Now the plan is fleeing and escaping something, you know, and so an entirely different action plan is then instituted. And then again, you modulate how, how well is this going? So it's a constant, a constant uh, a loop uh, between feeding forwards uh, intentions, the execution of those intentions, the feeding back of the outcome of those intentions, not only in terms of the outside world, but crucially in terms of the internal needs of the organism. And those needs are registered by the periaqueductal gray and prioritized. If I may just, because I'm mindful of the time and there's something I absolutely have to get in here, which is the following. Um, the, the, the need that is prioritized by the periaqueductal gray is the one that is felt. Uh, that is the prioritization. So the prioritization of, say, um, fear over sexual desire, you know, he, you might have a, a certain deviation in terms of where you want to be in terms of your sexual needs, but, you know, you're under attack. So you don't then think, well, I feel a little bit sexy while I run away. You don't feel anything about sex. You just feel fear. Uh, and the thing is, then you're monitoring how well am I doing? Is this action plan working or not working in terms of escaping this predator or escaping this baddie who's coming for me? Um, and then once you breach safety, the, the error signal is reduced, then you're not prioritizing fear anymore. Then you might say, well, perhaps sex was a bad example, but, but I'm stuck with it now. You know, then you might say, okay, you know, now I'm safe. Now let me go and, you know, let me go and see about this other need of mine again. The need that is prioritized is the one that comes to consciousness because consciousness modulates how well or badly you're doing. Consciousness uh, it is is felt uncertainty. It's the modulating of how confident or inconfident you are in your current action plan in relation to how well it's working uh, in relation to the error signal. So in other words, this need is 
this plan is making the error worse. This plan is making the error and is, is, is diminishing the error signal. In other words, it's meeting the need. Uh, so I have greater or lesser confidence in the plan. That's what the modulation is all about. It's increasing or decreasing the chances that you're going to do or not do something. Uh, that postsynaptic gain, that postsynaptic modulation is in statistical sense an increasing or decreasing confidence in the plan. By the way, uh, that's another whole story which we can go into the mathematics of how these, because these are ultimately all of them, uh, just they, they're just statistical neurons are just calculating probabilities all the time. But uh, I won't go into that for now. The, 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 the important thing is that the reason why the prioritized need comes to consciousness in the form of a feeling uh, is because that's what consciousness is for. It's for feeling your way through the problem and making choices accordingly. Uh, I say making choices accordingly because the other needs don't go away. Um, they, they still have to be met, but they're met unconsciously. In other words, there's no choice going on there. There's a, there's a stereotyped response. So now there's a fixed uh, confidence in your plan, uh, and that's what a, a, a plan in which you have a fixed confidence. You don't need to modulate how it's going because you've, it's it's stereotyped. It's 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 uh, it's automatic, and uh, those needs then. So you carry on breathing and you carry on your peristalsis and you carry on metabolizing sugar and all of that, but you're not conscious of it. What you're conscious of is: Am I getting? Am I getting out of this dangerous situation or not? Once that is over, fear no longer dominates consciousness. Now something else does. And uh, that's, the, that's the dimension of your current uh, voluntary activity that needs voluntary activity. In other words, where choices need to be made. In other words, where the uncertainty is, that's what's prioritized. Where, where there's least confidence that you've got an automatic plan that you can just run on autopilot. Um, you 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 you're not sure whether this is going to work or not, so you need to palpate the consequences of your actions uh, in, on an ongoing uh, basis, and that's just what we call consciousness. When you were saying that, and when I was reading it in preparation, I the Mike Tyson quote: "Everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face." Jumped to mind <laughs> as well. But there's a, a beautiful quote, and maybe you'll give us one line on it because you're running off. Uh, in the middle of treatment at the moment, the brain's internal model is the map we use to navigate the world, indeed, to generate an expected world. But we can't take all our predictions at face value. There are, in fact, two aspects to the expected context that the internal model generates. On the one hand, we have the actual content of our predictions. And on the other hand, is our level of confidence about their accuracy. Since all predictions are probabilis probabilistic, the degree of expected uncertainty attaching to them must also be coded. The predictions themselves are furnished by the forebrain's long-term memory networks, which filter the present through the lens of the past. But the second dimension, the adjustment of confidence level, is the essence of the work that is performed by modulatory arousal. I felt that is exactly what happens to individuals and businesses if they've been successful in the past and they have a model that works, a mental model that works, it becomes difficult to change that mental model as the business landscape changes or as your circumstances changes, because we give insufficient weight to the error signals. And as you say there, as the actual experienced context unfolds, 
the signal strengths must be adjusted. I thought that was a great lesson for the audience of this show as well, who navigate change, who drive change, who drive innovation. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, that summary that you've just given, um, that, that uh, encapsulates everything I've just been trying to say in, in, in 100 uh, times more words than you just used. I'll try to make it even more pithy and, and say it as follows. If things are going as expected, that's good. If uncertainty prevails, that's bad. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant way to finish, Mark. Right on time. Author of The Hidden Spring, A Journey to the Source of Consciousness. Mark Soames, thank you for joining us as ever. Great to see you.